ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And now for today's environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Thursday, September 30th. I'm Cade Young. Bloomington Utilities has recently advised residents of Bloomington and Monroe County to avoid draining treated water, such as pool water, into nearby drains or waterways. Treated water contains chemicals, such as chlorine, that have multiple negative side effects for the environment. These chemicals can contaminate fish, and hurt organisms that live on the ground or in the soil. Bloomington Utilities recommends that residents allow their pools to sit untreated for at least seven days before draining, which allows ample time for the pool water to lose the harmful chemicals before drainage. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources has identified a new invasive species found for the first time in the state. This species called the spotted lanternfly is a plant hopper insect that causes serious damage to gardens when feeding. They cause plants to wilt and die after feeding on the plant. In addition, the insects excrete a sugary substance that attracts black mold, which can cause further damage. The spotted lanternfly has an identifiable bright red and spotted coloring on its wings. The Indiana DNR is asking for citizens to report any sighting of the species to their email address at depp at dnr.in.gov. Indiana residents have wondered when to expect the most optimal time for the best fall colors from the changing foliage. According to the Smoky Mountains Fall Foliage Prediction Map, central Indiana should reach the peak of the season around October 25th, with weeks before and after being perfect times for those fall photos. Some of the best locations to view the fall foliage include Brown County State Park, the Monon Trail, Lake Monroe, and Clifty Falls State Park. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB and for Nathaniel Weinsapfel, I'm Cade Young. In today's feature report, WFHB reporter Nathaniel Weinzapfel talks about dry lands. This is coming up later in the program. And now for our environmental headline stories. 
The Indiana Environmental Reporter says solar energy has the potential to comprise up to 40% of the nation's energy supply by 2035, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. But pushback from utilities and lawmakers could limit how much Hoosiers can contribute to the solarization effort. In 2005, Indiana legislators approved a billing mechanism that allows residents and businesses to sell some of their solar power back to the grid. That led to a boom in solar installations and clean energy jobs around the state. But utility companies, stung by the drop in revenue from solar customers, pressured the Indiana legislature to drop the mechanism, known as net metering, by 2022. Since that legislation was implemented in 2016, the result has been an ongoing tussle involving consumers, independent solar power companies, legislators, and Indiana's powerful energy utilities. And it has led to what one clean energy company president calls a chilling effect on solar cells in Indiana. The U.S. Department of Energy recently released the Solar Futures Study, a report detailing the role of solar power in carbonizing the electrical grid to meet the Biden administration's goal to achieve a 50% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030. According to the report, in as little as 15 years, solar power could produce enough energy to power all the homes in the U.S. as long as technological advances continue and the solar effort receives long-term policy and market support. Energy Department researchers said acceleration of clean energy deployment requires incentivization through mechanisms like tax breaks and net metering to move away from fossil fuels and increase adoption of both utility-scale and residential solar energy systems. Companies in Indiana have worked to eliminate net metering due to the incentives resulting cut into utility companies' monthly revenue. The credits earned by using the power generated by residential solar systems reduce the money that comes into utility companies every month. That reduction in revenue, the industry has said, has affected how much money utility companies can put into maintaining infrastructure like power lines without raising prices. The end of net metering and lowered net metering rates for the foreseeable future means that farmers, churches, businesses, schools, local governments and homeowners will no longer have a financially viable reason to install solar electricity systems. Despite the opposition from the Office of Utility Consumer Counselor and the testimony of many consumer advocate organizations, the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission found that Centerpoint Energy's proposed rate and the methodology it used to calculate it were reasonable and complied with the law. It approved the petition April 7, 2021. The decision is being appealed. An example of the impact on solar was offered. A church in Holland, Indiana, which is also a veteran Centerpoint customer, simply isn't going to do solar for their childcare facility, even though some members of that church were willing to make substantial contributions to help pay for it. After analysis, they understood that it simply wasn't a good financial investment and they dropped the whole project. SB 309 blocks folks like these from the market. As the case was being decided, 
the four other major electric utilities submitted their own petitions to end net metering early and adopt new excess distributed generation rates. It's not clear whether solar will ever be an important part of in Indiana's energy mix. It's fair to say that our politicians have no intention of meeting the mileposts needed to have carbon-free energy by 2050. The environmental news from Montana isn't good. Last month, the state's Department of Environmental Quality stopped enforcing its so-called bad actor law against Hecla Mining Company and its CEO, Phillips S. Baker. The bad actor law was passed in 2001 to prevent mining executives from obtaining a new permit to mine in Montana if they'd failed to clean up their past mining messes. Baker was a senior executive at Pegasus Gold when it abandoned three highly toxic cyanide leach gold mines. The Zortman Landusky mines have cost the state of Montana over $30 million in cleanup costs and destroyed the land and water in the Little Rocky Mountains. Now Baker has returned to Montana as the CEO of Hecla, proposing two new mines that severely threaten the water and wildlife in the northwest part of the state. The nonprofit public interest law firm Earth Justice and environmental allies are challenging the Department of of environmental quality's decision to ignore the law against corporate bad actors. Critics of the decision are demanding that Montana Governor Greg Gianforte enforce that law. Six Native American tribes have sued the state of Wisconsin to attempt to halt its planned gray wolf hunt in November. The tribes claim that the hunt would violate their treaty rights and endanger an animal they consider sacred. As Marvin Defoe, an official and elder of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians, said in a statement, quote, To us, the wolves are our brothers. The legends and stories tell us as brothers we walk hand in hand together. What happens to the wolves happens to humanity, end quote. The Chippewa tribes say treaties give them rights to half the quota of hunted wolves in territory they ceded to the U.S. in the mid-19th century. However, they don't want to hunt wolves, but to protect them. During a court-ordered wolf hunt in February, the State Department of Natural Resources set a quota of 119, but hunters killed 218 wolves in only four days, thus forcing an early end to the killing. Wisconsin's wolf population is about 1,000 animals. Opponents of the hunt say hunters probably killed at least a quarter of the population if poaching is included. The environmental nonprofit Earth Justice is representing the tribes and is one of several organizations suing the federal government over the Trump administration's decision to end Endangered Species Act protections for gray wolves across most of the country and restore management authority to the states. And now for our feature WFHB reporter Nathaniel Weinzaffel talks about dry lands. When you think of dry lands, what first comes to mind? What about a field of zebras galloping across the savannas of Africa? Or perhaps a rattlesnake slithering past cacti in the deserts of Arizona? Maybe you think of a herd of cattle munching their way through the Great Plains of the United States. Dryland ecosystems make up around 40% of the land in the United States, including the vast desert of the Southwest and the Great Plains. Similarly, 
drylands comprise 40% of the entire Earth's land surface. With this in mind, a better understanding of such a vast area of the globe proves necessary. Indiana University professor Natasha McBean shares a similar sentiment. She was recently awarded a grant from the NASA Research Opportunities in Space and Earth Sciences Carbon Cycle Program to do just that, to understand more about drylands and specifically their role in the carbon cycle and how climate change could affect the ecosystem. Last week, Professor McBean spoke with WFHB News about her work. My research into drylands is primarily to understand the kind of ecosystem scale processes, so that the interaction between vegetation and water and carbon cycling, um, and how all of that is responding to climate change and also to land management change as well. Um, and mostly that's um, driven or motivated by a, a wider research sort of theme of mine, which is to understand global carbon cycling. Um, so we are obviously emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, um, and the land and the ocean uh, are taking up, they're absorbing about 50% of those emissions. And so we know that at kind of global scale number, but what we don't know is really which ecosystems, which regions and which processes are driving that sort of what we call a sink of carbon. And we also don't know if we're going to sort of maintain that 50% reduction on our emissions into the future or not. So we need to understand that better. And it has been highlighted in the past sort of decade or so that semi-arid ecosystems even, and dryland ecosystems more broadly, um, are playing a big role in, in the sort of interannual, sort of year-to-year -year variability in global carbon cycling. Um, and so we, we want to understand that a bit better. And there are lots of people working in the field in dryland ecosystems, understanding processes, and that's been, that work has been going on for a while. But where my research comes in is really scaling that up to broader scales sort of regional to continental scales and then up to the globe as well. Um, and the sort of second component of that is making sure that our process understanding of the carbon water um, vegetation dynamics is implemented into the, the kinds of global earth system models that we're using for uh, climate change projections for the IPCC, for example. With this broad overview of Professor McBean's work in mind, the experts shared more about drylands themselves and some of their characteristics. Drylands are um, inherently water-limited, and, and all uh, most of their ecosystem processes um, uh, are driven by moisture availability. And so that means that there's sort of less rainfall on average, and there is a kind of potential for evaporation, evapotranspiration. And so there are lots of different strategies in these ecosystems, a lot of different vegetation types um, and strategies for dealing with that kind of at least seasonal water stress and year-to-year -year changes in water availability. Dry lands, um, you know, they cover about 40% of our land surface. Some of that is, is you know, obviously the desert. So that takes up about... Um, I guess, 7%. So I think, you know, one third of the land surface is, is kind of the semi-arid. Um, 
subhumid dry land ecosystems that have quite a bit of vegetation. They're kind of savannas or grasslands, etc. And they have a lot of sort of ecosystem services, we should say, and they support about just over a third of the world's population. Um, so they have tons of ecosystem services for those, that population, such as often these regions are used for grazing, for uh, livestock production. Um, there's obviously uh, water uh, availability issues in, uh, in those ecosystems, so the populations that need water. Um, we actually in the U.S., I, I can't remember now the number, but we grow a lot of our crops in the U.S. Um, in the southwest and west, uh, where it's actually water limited, which I don't think always makes that much sense, um, especially some of the crops that need a lot of water and, and therefore are irrigated a lot. So uh, these are the kinds of ecosystem services that are, uh, come from these ecosystems. They're also really diverse, and they've got a lot of different um, flora and fauna that are also, you know, often beneficial for various, you know, for food, for culture, and medicines, etc. So lots of different purposes and supporting a lot of the, of the world's population. Dryland ecosystems are extremely complex and important for many key species that depend on them, as well as humans who depend on them for their livelihood and survival. A key part of MacBean's research is to understand how climate change and other human effects could impact drylands. Climate change, I'd say, is sort of is one of the big pressures. Um, other pressures are kind of just population increase and land management. You know, like I just mentioned, are we really managing the land well in these ecosystems? So we're often overgrazing them and overcultivating them, and maybe not growing the right crops, etc. That's that's one thing. And climate change interacts with that. Um, the the biggest things that climate change is going to do in these ecosystems is change the water availability. And so that's a couple of things. One is um, changing rainfall variability. So it, it sometimes means more intense storms. Um, for example, the southwest U.S. is driven by the North American monsoon, which provides the water availability. And that's not necessarily going to go away, but the, the characteristics of it might change, you know, if there are more intense storms, then that's not necessarily a good thing. We might lose a lot of that water as, as runoff um, if it's just too intense for ecosystems to manage. But there's also with climate change a lot of drought. Most of the west and southwest of the U.S., for example, has been in a mega drought for most of this century. Um, and that, we think, going to be exacerbated with climate change. So... These ecosystems really rely on water availability. They're adapted to the kind of seasonal changes in water availability. And as that change and changes and potentially gets more, you know, extreme droughts in the future with climate change, the, the plants and, and all the ecosystem processes are going to have to adapt to that. Um, and, and the second thing I'd say with climate change that I think we're seeing a lot now is um, potentially increased risk of wildfire. There is an interplay there with land management um, and building and, and sort of urban expansion and how we've managed fires in the past. But um, we think that, you know, one of the reasons why wildfires might be increasing is increasing temperatures. And, and again, dry land ecosystems are well adapted to deal with fire over, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. But um, as these changes are sort of accelerating, the, the vegetation will have to adapt to that as well. 
Dryland ecosystems and how they relate to the global carbon cycle and global climate is a topic that requires more understanding. As mentioned before, Professor McBean was recently awarded a $900,000 grant from NASA to provide funding for more research into drylands. McBean described how this grant came about and what her team's research will do to improve the mapping of drylands and better understand the potential environmental effects on the ecosystem. So NASA has a bunch of different calls on different topics, and they have a carbon cycle science program that's specifically about understanding the carbon cycle of, of terrestrial ecosystems. Um, it can be any type of ecosystem. Um, and so, you know, I've been already doing research in dryland carbon cycling and through my work in when I was at the University of Arizona, my collaborators there. So I got together with a with a few different collaborators who are working in the southwest um, and working on, on drylands um, to, to put in a grant that was aimed at really improving our understanding of carbon cycling in drylands. And, and what we're trying to do is, is a mixture of different things. So we're trying to improve our mapping of different um, plant types, vegetation types and soil cover in these regions because they're often very um, spatially heterogeneous. If you think of savannas, you know, you've got shrubs dotted everywhere and it's very difficult to map those types of ecosystems. And then once we hopefully can do that a little bit better, we're, we're going to take a lot of other measurements from the field, remote sensing measurements, and link uh, that kind of cover type, the plant cover type, to their functioning and their responses to uh, changing rainfall, et cetera. Um, and then the third part is to implement that in, into models. So it's really a kind of bringing together people working on different things, modeling, remote sensing, field measurements, and working across scales, you know, scaling up from understanding ecosystem processes at the field scale to modeling at the regional to global scale um, with remote sensing and satellite data, you know, in between there. So, yeah, that's how it came about, just a, a meeting of collaborators who wanted to continue working on that. With an uncertain future, McBean's research offers a chance for scientists to understand and perhaps predict the future of drylands through the use of modeling. McBean provided insight as to how this project will help in this endeavor. What we really want to do, and that's you know one of the goals of this project, is to make sure that we have the sort of right process understanding in the kinds of models that we use to make predictions like that. And then, you know, hopefully by the end of this project, we, we won't have um, developed everything that we need in the models um, to, to look at those kinds of questions, but I think we'll be able to say, you know, run kind of future simulations under climate change scenarios and see whether we are seeing, for example, like an expansion of, of dryland vegetation. That, that's a real uh, overall goal, but I'd say we want to really test and develop the models a little bit better first before we say that more definitively. With hard work and dedication, Professor Natasha McBean's work is being recognized for its immense importance and is now funded by NASA. With research just beginning, there are limitless amounts of information to still be learned about our world's drylands. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Winesaffel. For Eco Report, I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And I'm Juliana Daly. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption 
and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. Friends of Lake Monroe invite you to a tour of the Lake Monroe watershed on Saturday, October 2nd. The tour will travel by bus with staggered seating with open windows and for only 20 people. You will learn about the three main tributaries that flow into Lake Monroe, known as Salt Creek. One stop will include a sewage treatment plant. Registration and a COVID vaccination are required. To register, please visit friendsoflakemonroe.org slash event slash October dash lake dash Monroe dash watershed dash tour slash. Plan to attend Bug Fest at Hilltop Gardens at Indiana University on Saturday, October 2nd from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Learn all about insects and much more, like why are there so many stink bugs? Exhibitors will share and display their knowledge on a variety of buggy topics. Meet naturalist Emily at the Twin Caves parking lot for a nature preserve hike at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, October 3rd from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. This is a rugged hike through three nature preserves on Trail 3. You will learn about the Spring Mill Caves, Old Growth Forest, and wildlife along the 2.5-mile hike. Please wear sturdy shoes. The Nature Sounds series continues with the Poetry of Leaves on Friday, October 8th from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. at the Crestmont Park Shelter. A guest storyteller will be present to talk about how the wind can howl, scream, sigh, murmur, and roar, all coming from the rustling of leaves. Bring your own seating. You can learn the life-changing skill of making a fire by friction at this Rekindle the Ancient Fire program on Saturday, October 9th from 12.30 to 4 p.m. in the Lower Cascades Park at the Sycamore Shelter. You will learn everything you need to know about how to make a fire and leave with your very own bow kit. Registration is required by October 5th at bloomington.in.gov parks. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by WFHB reporter Nathaniel Weinsapple. Patrick Callanan assembled the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. 
Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.